talking Dice Masters, the beauty of the underlying mechanics, the hidden complexities, and the strategy, tactics, and decisions of competitive play. If you're just starting the game or have been here since the first set, hopefully you'll find something in this show that'll do you some good. So shake up your bag, reconnoiter your opponent, and get ready to roll. Alright, you role-playing masterminds of powerful superheroes. Welcome back to Season 1, Episode 7 of Roll and Thunder. Wait, 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 wait. Masterminds of powerful superheroes? <laughs> what are we talking about? Ah, you see, there's been a lot of things spoiled since our last episode. One of them being the new rulebook for X-Men Forever. I think it was the folks at DM North who caught that one. Anyway, that masterminds of powerful superhero stuff is straight from the first paragraph of the new rulebook. Anyway, I took the opportunity to reread it in anticipation of this episode, and let me tell you, it's well worth the effort. If you're a veteran and haven't cracked open a rulebook since before Avengers Infinity, I highly recommend giving it a look. There's a lot of new stuff in there. For example, did you know that virtual energy is lost after passing priority? or that they've clearly defined the three types of game effects, applied, persistent, and static. There's even a clarification in there about how you cannot swap a character die with a persistent effect on it that causes it to return to its card at the end of turn. Take that, Rare Collector. That's great, but a lot more than just the rulebook was spoiled. Isaac with Gaming with Sidekick spoiled a ton of the new character cards, True Mr. Six from the Ministry of Dice spoiled the new basic actions, and Stephen Cookus from DM Armada did an awesome unboxing on YouTube. All of them are worth a look. Indeed they are. But let's get on with the show. And we're going deep in the weeds this week. But before we haul out the weed whacker, let's talk shop about the one big weekend online final taking place less than a week from when this episode drops. Right now we've got 23 contestants. Remember, all contestants are required to submit their teams by Thursday, April 25th at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. To do that, make your team on the Dice Coalition Team Builder, copy the link to it, and submit that link to the team registration form, which can be found at rollandthunder.xyz forward slash O-B-W-O. So that's part one. Submit your team by April 25th. However, because we currently have an odd number of players and we'd like to maximize gameplay participation, we are opening up a wild card spot for this tournament. One person will be randomly selected to participate in the One Big Weekend online tournament. If you finished third or fourth at your local event and didn't qualify for the tournament but wanted to play, this may be your opportunity. Go to rollandthunder.xyz forward slash OBWO. You'll also find a link to the One Big Weekend online wildcard lottery entry form. Fill out all the sections to the best of your ability. If you have any questions, please contact your local tournament organizer or email me at arge at rollandthunder.xyz. Entries will be open through Tuesday, April 23rd for the wildcard spot, and a winner will be drawn and announced on Wednesday, April 24th. If you do not win, your name will remain on an alternate list in the event that people drop out last minute. So if you're second, third, fourth, or maybe even fifth, there's still a chance that you will get into the tournament, so still have a team built and ready. All right, it's Lorshin Lishnarodi Show, Yeah, that's enough of that. And let's get to it. Fire away. Tonight on the show, we have with us the expert of experts, the Sage of Savants, a man who puts the cerebellum in Cerebro, a founding member of the Dice Coalition, a top four finisher at the Portland WKO in 2015, 
the winner of the November 2006 25-person Portland WKO, a top 20 finisher in the 2017 U.S. National Championships, a top 8 quarterfinalist in the 2017 World Championships, and the main judge at the 2018 U.S. National Championships, a master of mechanics and the connoisseur of code for the game. So much so that you might say he wrote part of the rulebook. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the man who ringed out the bards, the pontiff of Portland, Mr. Paul Kushner! Hi. <laughs> Hello, BK. Welcome to the show. Howdy, howdy. Good to be here. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show tonight. I know you've got a lot of competing responsibilities, children, crazy upside-down work hours, so we really appreciate you taking the time to get into the weeds with us, and thank you in advance. Hey, not a problem. I thank you. You guys are doing a great job for the community, and it is uh, definitely appreciated. Oh, well, our, our great pleasure. We're having fun doing it, so we're just going to keep rolling along. You're well-known in the community for your knowledge of the rules and your acumen when it comes to explaining them, especially for your generosity when it comes to answering people's questions about rules or explaining complicated interactions. And I want to salute your bravery here, because if you'll bear with me on this analogy, the rules are kind of like the grammar of our game. And if you ever study the language, there's no conversation more polarizing than a conversation about grammar. And paradoxically, a lot of people think grammar is boring, but man, can they get heated over it. The same thing is true concerning conversations about the rules and Dice Masters. People get really worked up about it, and your equanimity and your ability to explain things calmly and concisely and without judgment, I think, has served the community really, really well. So I just want to say thank you for that. Well, I appreciate it. I, I, I do my best. I mean, I, I love the game. I've loved it for many years now. Uh, not quite since the very beginning, but pretty close. And whatever I can do to help, I really want to be able to do it. So, Well, that's awesome. So right off the bat, how did you get to the game? Well, you said you started near the beginning. When, when did you pick it up and, and how did you come to it? So I'm a fairly frequent reader on Board Game Geek, and I try to kind of keep a general overview of like, hey, what's kind of going on? What are the big games people are talking about? So I have a vague idea of what I might be interested in. I played Couriers before because ah. it's an interesting progression because Dominion is a very popular card game which kind of introduced the deck building concept, took it out of like what you do before you play a game of Magic and turned it into this is the game itself is building this deck. And I like it. It's a lot of shuffling cards. And then they came out with a dice version of it. And I thought, this is a great idea. I don't have to <laughs> shuffle. Right. I can just put dice in a bag and shake it. And go from there. Yeah. And obviously, if you know your history, that Couriers was designed by Mike Elliott and Eric Lang. And they took the basic mechanics of that and turned it back into kind of going back to Magic to being a one versus one competitive game. I, I knew this thing existed. I knew it sounded interesting. But obviously, it was a collectible card game, collectible right. dice game. <laughs> and that is a money pit that I have mostly been able to avoid before this. 
I never really got into magic and I only barely got into Pokemon at the very beginning of that. Uh And so I was cautious. I I don't want to get sucked into this big money pit, but (laughs) $1 a pack boosters is very hard to resist. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You're talking to the main addict right here, man. I was jonesing outside the store every other day. (laughs) And one of the things that I always appreciated that from some of the very early interviews, they really wanted to focus on not making it a pay-to-win game. Yeah. They really wanted to kind of spread that power level out among the the common versus the rare versus the mm-hmm. super rare. So it wasn't just the person who spent the most money on the hardest to find cards was always going to win. You know, common cards are competitive and uncommon yeah. cards are competitive. And then they came out with Serena and Gabi and messed it up right <laughs> out of the gate. But <laughs> but after that, I think they kind of got things balanced again. Yeah, they, much, they got you know? much better after that. Well, but, you know, uh, Green Goliath <laughs> was an uncommon, and he was king in AVX much more so than, well, not much more so, but more so than Gabi and Serena, if yeah, you ask me. I don't know. Gabi was pretty good. <laughs> and then, you know, Punisher McRook was a common, and that was very sought after in drafts so for sure there was a lot of cards among rarities that definitely helped out so you kind of came through it through quarters how much quarters did you play i bought the first couple sets and played it with my family some and we enjoyed it it was Mm -hmm. in that category we've gotten a lot more of dominion than we have quarters but got it you know it was it was a fun game i enjoyed it you know it's funny because you would think that a lot of people came from quarters but i i can only count them on one hand the people who started with quarters which would seem like a natural transition but, I uh, think not a lot of people have honestly heard about it, which, you huh. know, it was it was never like a super popular game. Right. It was like, you know, a kind of an, an interesting flash in the pan of deck building, but with dice. So it was more of a quirk than anything else. Kind mm-hmm. of a, this is an interesting thing. How, do you know anything about I know they made an app for it on the iPad and, and uh, I'm not sure if you can use it on the phone, but a Quarriers app. And I always thought, well, maybe they've got the bones for uh, if they've done that, they might have the bones for a Dice Masters app. I think that I downloaded it at one point and maybe tried it and it didn't work that well for me. (laughs) Um, And you're not, the whole point of the game is rolling dice. Right. You can't simulate that. Like that's true. Yes. Technically with a computer you can, but it's not the same. You're not rolling the dice. And that's, that's what makes dice master so great is actually physically manipulating the dice. That's, What's the fun about the game? <laughs> See, otherwise, you get mad at your computer instead of fate, and that doesn't seem fair, does it? <laughs> yeah, you got to be able to blame your dice bag or your dice cup. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, we'd love to talk to you about one card that has always interested me, and I'm curious why people haven't played it more, especially because we've kind of moved into a big-time action-heavy meta. And uh, one of the teams that jumped out to me was you had run the at your WKO, I think it was 2016. Bard meta. It was Bard meta. Yes. So it was definitely the Bard meta. <laughs> yeah, and you ran this mask ring team, this WKO. It was a big one, too. It had like 25 people at it, Vicious Struggle, and Bard was kicking around a lot. And you ran this mask ring team that had some of the pieces from, I believe, Guillermo's team. But you had tinkered it out, and you'd put on the Dormammu Burning Ambition card, which has always fascinated me. And I just wanted to talk about your experience running that team during that weekend did you get a chance to ever get to dormammu or first of all we should probably talk about the team what do you have the team in front of you by any chance it was a ring team so lantern mm-hmm. ring limited only by imagination is definitely the linchpin of the team it's right. where the damage is going to come that's going to end up killing the opponent and there hadn't been any rotation yet so it was everything that existed at that time right and aside from the lantern ring itself which obviously is a bolt action 
everything else on my team was masks. I was very focused on whatever I roll, I'm getting mask energy, I'm going to be able to buy something. Right. You got Morphing Jar, the old one-cost Canoptic Jar, the Elf Thief Lesser, right? Yep. And Oracle for the Globals, the Master Investigator. Scarecrow, Legion of Doom. Uh-huh. Good card. Raven, Azerath, Metreon, Zenthos. Dormammu, as we mentioned, and Rip Hunter's Chalkboard. And then for the basic actions, had uh, two different ones that had mass globals, the Blink Transmutation and Polymorph. That's awesome. Was this by chance the same team that you ran at Nats and Worlds that year? It quite possibly was, or a very, very similar to it, if not the exact same thing. I, know I, it... I feel like I played against something similar. <laughs> yeah, so if I remember correctly, and this is actually uh, <laughs> interesting, because I remember that year I, was the first time I had met you guys, because you know, I flew out to Origins and we played. And Luke, and I think that I actually played you in one of the first round of Nats. either the first round or maybe or one of the side events or something. And you had a, a similar, you know, mask ring team and I trounced you because, you know, I do that. <laughs> um, but like, I, rem- well, I don't know. Let's, let's not call it trounce. I was look, there were some there were some piloting errors, but there were also a few times where I was just one die roll away from leaking. No, absolutely. You know? But it, it really was it was a great match and I really enjoyed playing with you. And I remember after that first match, because it was pretty early on in the weekend. And uh, we just kind of talked and, uh, you know, I kind of gave you some tips for, you know, hey, this is like some of the things you can do if you have this situation. And yeah, yeah just feel the sidekicks. With yeah, and that was the big tip that I got. And then I went I went almost undefeated for the rest. of the Yeah, day. exactly. And I think you actually beat me <laughs> once or twice later on. And I'm like, why did I have to give him all this advice? <laughs> I'm, I'm just like digging my own grave here. So, you know, it, but well, thank you. It's very generous. But it was really it, I mean, it was it was I was very impressed with the way that you were able to take you know, just those few comments that I made and just focus and apply them. And it's really hard to be able to take advice and apply it that quickly and that effectively. And you just did a great job at that. And I was really impressed. So. Oh, thank you. So I believe you ran the same WKO team for nationals and you almost ran the same thing for worlds, except you swapped out one card for the three cost static Virgil Hawkins that does damage. Yeah, that was a bad choice. That was. That I was, was it was a bad seemed. Choice. It seemed odd. <laughs> you know, but your your team did really well. But I was curious what what was your logic behind that to, when you moved to Worlds? You took off Dormammu, I think, and put on static. I think that I wasn't purchasing Dormammu enough, and I wasn't feeling the need for him quite as strongly as I had before. You know, there had been some changes. I think the first turn rule had had come out between my WKO and then, and that had affected the way that some of these teams kind of were constructed and played. I just didn't really see the need as strongly for Dormammu as I had previously. And Out, out of speculation, you know, back in the Bard meta, Cloud Kill was an action die that you needed to roll, and if you got Dormammu out there, you're stopping Cloud Kill and Prismatic Spray, which were both super popular. And then by the time that Worlds rolled around, Bard had been preemptively cycled. So you have uh, Lantern Ring being the big meta action die, but since it's continuous, once you use it, yep. it's you can't get rid of it with Dormammu. So well, also Bard was moving so fast that it's hard to get a six cost out in front of him, you know. So yeah, absolutely. Right? And I think that my my thought with Static was just kind of having some more targeted removal because I didn't really have a whole lot of targeted removal on my team, and I was kind of feeling that was a weakness, but. Quite honestly, I, I don't remember if I ever purchased him. 
or if I did it. Maybe he gives you bolts to get that ring if you need it. I mean, that was the only thing I looked at. And I was like, well, he's good removal, and he gives you bolts if you need it. I don't know. Yeah. You know being an all I mean, he was a Teen Titan, so, so Raven would protect him. You know, Raven protects oh, both right. masks and Teen Titans. That's kind of a little overlooked, but I mean, it, he just he wasn't a good call. It was <laughs> it was not a good decision on my part to, to put him in there, and I, I don't think that I ever purchased them, or if I did, it was uh, way too late to make any kind of a difference. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, I want to just look at this team because I think this team is actually really relevant to today, given that we're kind of stepping back in with this new Green Lantern, basically Lantern Ring on Legs. You know, a lot of these cards, especially if you play them in Golden, it work perfectly well. You know, you just swap out Lantern Ring and you've almost got the same team that is pretty awesome. Um, you know, Morphing Jar, the one-cost mask with great stats. Uh-huh. Elf Thief for stealing, you know, stealing energy. I mean, I noticed that you didn't run PXG here. You don't need yeah, it. Yeah, right? and that was a, a conscious decision on my part, uh, especially back then because... For one, PXG was super relevant. Like the Bard teams used it extensively. The Vicious Struggle teams used it extensively. Any team that I was facing, I would expect to see it. And so obviously I'm rolling tons of masks. I can take advantage of it. But my team was so low cost that if I didn't have it, it didn't hurt me that badly. I didn't need tons and tons and tons of energy to get what I needed. They're not going to bring PXG. Fine, we'll play without (laughs) it. And I'm good with that. Yeah. For me, the big thing that I just was like, no PXG or multiple man, like that's that's next level, you know. Yeah, and no, the other thing that's really cool is Oracle is a card, especially I'm you know, today's meta suddenly it's feeling a lot like that PXG meta where globals have kind of there was a period where globals dipped down for a while. And right now with Cree Captain Global and Clayface Global and Primaris Aggressor Global, I mean there's a lot of globals that have come back and are making themselves felt. And the card that jumped out to me again is Oracle. And she, you know, you talked about Lantern Ring being a center of your piece, but Oracle really kind of glues this together in a way, right? I mean, if you get her out early, that can really cramp your opponent pretty yeah, hard. Yeah, and right? facing, you know, some of those turn three, turn four teams, like I had a very specific buy order because Vicious Struggle, if they roll right and they go first. It's, it's over yeah. turn three with no chance to respond. And so what I had to basically do was work out a way, and I had to get the right rolls, but I could get Oracle out my turn two before they would be able to do anything. That's awesome. Can you talk about how, how you set that so up? So the basic thing would be my opponent would almost always be bringing the Red Dragon Global if they were going to be using a Vicious Struggle team because they wanted that discount on the action plus that extra little bit of right. damage. So I could generally rely on them having that and also PXG. So basically what I would do kind of initially is I would get Polymorph on turn one and prep it with the uh, the Rip Hunter's chalkboard. And then second awesome. turn, I would basically buy Oracle and immediately polymorph her into the field. <laughs> That's awesome. So for the newly initiated, you would use the Red Dragon Global, which says pay a bolt. You can reduce the cost of an action by two and then deal one damage to your opponent when you buy that. Yeah, let me try to see. Okay, so yeah, turn one, I would uh, Red Dragon Global, Rip Hunter Global. So that would let me get Polymorph for one, save a mask for using on PXG. Yeah. Or if I rolled a sidekick instead of a mask, I could get it out there because I would eventually need to get a sidekick anyway. But having that extra die from PXG, I would definitely be helpful. Right, because you had that, then you roll in six, and the odds are good you roll one anyway, right? Yeah, roll in six plus polymorph, so that gets me a sidekick to get out in the field, buy Oracle, poly her in, and then if I was able to to get the mask in PXG, I would have still hopefully a mask left over after all that 
to keep ramping up with more PXG. And you found that just getting Oracle out was effective enough to shut down the Vicious Struggle teams and you didn't have to play the Vicious Struggle minigame? Basically, yeah, because getting her out that quickly, you know, they couldn't kill me, turn three. Right. And then I'd already have her out. It would slow them down so much I could start getting myself set up and get what I needed to do. And that morphing jar is insane. Like if you look at the stat line for it, it's a zero zero one fielding. So it's cheap to get out in the field. And on that level three face, you're talking four three for a one cost. That is insane. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, and, and going back to Rip Hunter and how you'd get Oracle in the field turn three. Turn like, two. Or turn two, sorry. <laughs> Rip Hunter was an actual form of pseudo-ramp because it worked on its own. You could get things over fast enough, and if you needed to, you could get six energy without too much difficulty. And it's just overlooked a lot of the times, I think, how powerful that global is and just how accessible. When we play Golden, I never see anybody running that global. It's a double-edged sword in some cases. It's a double-edged sword in some cases, but it is a solid substitute for any PXG or multiple men, it it, it works well. Like, oh, for it's, sure. Yeah, it's it, it's definitely, it was a super solid global. And when I chose not to do PXG, I, I made sure that I was putting in the Rip Hunter's Chalkboard because it wasn't quite as prevalent as PXG, but it would get me what I needed to be able to pull off my getting Oracle out. That was more of a linchpin, more needed than PXG for myself. That's cool. The team you faced in the end was this very interesting Genzo Vicious Struggle team. Do you remember how they were running that? I remember even back in the day that that struck me as an interesting team. It was a solid team. Like it was it was not a meta team. I'd never seen it being floated around. Yeah. It was these two guys that were local that had just done a ton of research and a ton of team building. And they had put together this team and they were running it and they had practiced it. They were running it really, really well. And (laughs) they basically would get like Jinzo out and almost no other characters and then just imprison my stuff and vicious struggle me, you know, imprison, but not deal the damage until they were ready to to just pile it on so you know they weren't gonna like you know ping me with little bits of damage and release all my stuff when they were ready to do it they were gonna hurt it was it was a very solid team and it was a challenge it just so happened that my team for whatever reason just worked really well against them and but yeah they they took out bard teams with no problem they took out other vicious struggle teams with no problem it was a super solid team they had human torch flame on professor x trainer for the obvious pxg reasons luke cage to do the imprisoned vicious struggle stuff genzo parallax red dragon and then they had phoenix red which was kind of probably ultimately a mistake because they had that taunt global on it that could break their own imprisoned, right? It could. Uh, I think that they were hoping to get imprisoned more. But yeah, I think that, you know, they were kind of relying on their Jinzo. You know, if I was going to be taunting and, and pulling them out, I was going to be losing life from Jinzo. That's true. Any of their globals that I tried to use would, would hurt me because of Jinzo. So, Boy, yeah, such absolutely. a good card, right? That Jinzo. And, and, you know, such a good answer to vicious struggle because you know if you try to out many game them you're going to have to use lots of globals and they're going to throw genzo out and hurt you pretty bad so yeah and it's globals and actions yeah. the vicious struggle action you're hurting yourself and it's life loss so that's not going to be triggering vicious struggle it's not going to be messing with imprisoned it's just it's just killing you Yep, super clever. I'm going to include links in the show notes to both of those teams if people are interested. And so I'll throw links into everything that we talk about. So if you want to check that out, it's going to be at rollandthunder.xyz forward slash 107 for season one, episode seven. 
You know, before we move on from the maskering team, I do want to talk about this Dormammu card because he just, I, I, I've looked at him from the beginning and thought, he's a really good card and no one's playing him. When you played it in the first tournament, did you ever buy him or how did that work? I think that I purchased him once because again, at, at that particular WKO, you know, the team to beat really was that Genzo team and they weren't fielding characters. Right. So Dormammu wouldn't have done me any good in that particular situation. So in that sense, it wasn't really helpful. What was helpful was his higher fielding cost, which would keep him from being imprisoned. Mm -hmm, yeah. That was one benefit of him. And then I was facing at least one Venom team that had that rare Venom oh, that just yeah. took out my sidekicks. And honestly, most of my team had relatively low yep. defense and I just couldn't get them on the field. Wouldn't he be a good card in today's meta? Oh, yeah. You know? well, the, the big problem with Dormammu, I think, always has been that when he first came around, the meta was extremely fast-paced, and you made him work, right? He's a good card, but like it just wasn't always at the front of people's imaginations. They just kind of ruled it out before yeah, they gave it a shot. And then by the time Bard came out, you know, Scarlet Witch was just around the corner, who is, I think she's better than Dormammu. <laughs> I wish Dormammu was better, because he's yeah. way cooler. But against the right team, he's pretty good. So I'm sorry, you, you were talking about using yeah, it. Yeah, I, mean, I was just, tournament. like I said, he his downside is he's a six cost, and it's not that hard to reach for six nowadays, and it wasn't even necessarily at that time. But with Bard especially, the low cost, get a bunch of characters, get them out there, and whether it be pump them up with Bard or spread out the damage with the ring team, you know, you want more lower cost characters rather than a single high cost character unless that one high cost character is going to be the linchpin of your team. And he was never the linchpin of my team. He was a, an extra if I have a lot of energy and I need a big body, if they're fielding a ton of characters and I might be able to use that. But again, it's it's three or more unique characters. So, you know, having a couple sidekicks out there, you can have a whole field of sidekicks and that's one character for his purposes. Yeah. So he just he he had just a few too many limitations to make him as effective as he could have been right but in this day and age i'm looking at him thinking like you know team up teams are a thing doomlance teams are a thing yellow lanterning teams are a thing <laughs> there's a lot of actions smoking around out there and there's a lot of people playing especially with team up you know you got to have several characters in the field and if that's your win con you don't have bard to buff mm -hmm. you anymore Maybe maybe he deserves another look. I I, I don't know. Yeah, he's got you know? such a cool foil alt art card. <laughs> yes, he does, doesn't he? And for that reason alone, I feel like people should be playing him. All right. Well, we would be remiss not to talk some rules, as you are, you know, the guru of the rules. Do you mind if we just dive into some? Or? Uh, that's totally fine. I'm going to preface this by saying that that the vast majority of these are my opinion, my interpretation, sure, and are quite possible if not likely to be overturned by the powers that be that actually run this thing <laughs> so by the, by the time this podcast drops half of this may be irrelevant but but as of right now let's let's go with it okay uh, yeah i mean for us if there's like some squabble going on like if i say no it's this way and he's like no it's definitely this way and some other guy from our store is like oh you're both wrong we just kind of wait for you to say something and we're just like oh it's decided you know there's no there's no question about 
about it. Like, this is like the unofficial official, right? The fact of the matter is, unfortunately, the rules forum has been a little quiet, as we all know. And so if we can at least all kind of put some of these things out in the open and come to an agreement on it, then maybe we can just all play and accept it and move forward. You know, having some agreement on it, I think, is helpful. And once again, just make it clear, I am not the rules forum. I do not have the password. I don't have the login information. I can't do a thing on the on the rules forum so just a highly educated opinion here we go got it let's start off one of the cards that's new that a lot of people are talking about is the poison ivy criminal because of love and you know she has that text that says when fielded you may ko a character die you control if you do deal damage equal to the ko'd character dies level to target opponent and all the character dice that opponent controls so there's a couple of meta things with these cards that might illustrate a couple things first of all she says, if you do deal damage equal to the character dies level, who does the damage here? Is it you, the player, or the card, the character? Is it Poison Ivy? So there's actually a really, really old WizKids Rules Forum ruling on this from UXM Cable, who had a similar kind of awesome. text where it said, if this happens, deal damage. And somebody asked right. almost the exact same question of, are you dealing the damage? Is Cable dealing the damage? I think at that time, because Cable was a Bolt character and Cyclops would increase damage from Bolt characters. So, hey, if Got it is it. Cable, then it's getting increased. You know, I can pop up the link that people can look at that, but it says the assumption for all dice cards characters that describe dealing damage are dealing the damage themselves. It does not come from the player or some other unknown source. Got so it. unless it specifically says this other thing is dealing the damage, you got to assume that the card whose text it is is the one dealing the damage. So is it safe to assume in this case that a player can't really do the damage? They use the tools that are at their disposal, like characters or actions, and, and they're the things doing right. the damage. Right. I, I don't correct? think that there is any time when a player would be the source of damage. It would be a character. What about a global? A like- global would be a source of damage, you know, and a player could use a global to deal damage, but the global is the source of the damage, which when you're talking about a bolt character dealing damage, if there's a global that is on a bolt character's card, that does not make it a bolt character dealing the damage. The global is a unique entity separate from the card that it happens to be on. And it's its own source of damage that doesn't have an energy type that would affect what might be damaged, prevented, modified, etc. Interesting. Okay. So so a lot of people are saying with the Black Manta ruling that came out a long time ago, you know, if you feel Poison Ivy, you can't KO her and deal the damage because Black Manta said the thing where he had to be active in order to trigger the retaliation. Right, and I, I've tried to think about that a lot, and this is one of those that it very well may be overruled by people above me. My my view on this is that the abilities are a little bit different in a kind of a subtle way. Retaliation is a while active ability. So it requires the character with retaliation to be active throughout the entire thing. And it's triggered on this other die getting KO'd, but it being a while active ability is kind of sitting back and watching this thing happen over yeah. there. And it's got to be active to watch this whole thing happen. Poison Ivy is a kind of an all-at-once kind of a more of a triggered ability. It's a when-fielded ability. So when fielded, you do all this stuff. And it's all part and parcel, this one single packed ability that is a when-fielded, like I said, a kind of a triggered ability. Right. And so it can resolve all on its own, all of itself, 
once that initial fielding has taken place, it all happens. And like I said, you can select her and she'll be KO'd, but that ability is still processing because it's already it's already been triggered. It's still processing. Right. Even if she is being KO'd, the ability itself has been triggered and is in the process of resolving. The, the whole thing is the resolution of the ability, which is a little bit different in my mind from Black Manta, who his is a while-active ability. He's got to be active to watch this whole thing unfold. And, and after it's unfolded, then he's like, oh yeah, this happened, boom, here's your damage. Well, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. Uh, hopefully that clears it up for people. You know, I want to follow up with this Poison Ivy, because the other card that, I know Jordo ran a team that was really interesting. I think he wrote it up on DM North. And he was using it with the uh, Black Adam Vengeful, who has a text of, while Black Adam is active, when one of your Legion of Doom character dice KOs an opposing character die, the KO'd character dies, controller loses one life. So in this case, because... Poison Ivy is the source of damage, and she is a Legion of Doom character. Black Adam's ability would would proceed, right? I, I see no reason it wouldn't. I, that totally would would be logical to me. I would rule it like that because, yeah, if she deals that damage to a sidekick and it's KO'd, then yeah, go for it. Makes sense to me. Okay, great. Let's talk a little bit about the old uncommon absorbing man, Harold's Ice Cream. Now, I know there was a ruling with the rare absorbing man. He was the one that doubled the windfield effects. But the uncommon has always kind of intrigued me. And I, I was wondering how... It's, it's the one that doubles the wind KO'd effect. Yeah, uncommon doubles the KO effects. Rare doubles the wind fielded effects. Or right. Doubles isn't quite right, but we'll go with it for now. <laughs> well, he says, when, when absorbing man is active, when a wind KO'd effect is used, you may use a copy of that effect. So I guess the first question is, as I was thinking about running that card with the dupe, the KO dupe, uh-huh. I think it was the common one that when he's KO'd, you capture a target opposing character die until the start of your next turn. How do you see those two cards working in conjunction? You had an explanation for me at the time, and I forgot it, and I remember it made me scratch my head a lot, so I'm wondering yeah, if you could talk me through it. It's, it's definitely a very weird interaction, and quite honestly, dupe himself, he breaks the rules of the game that I yes. <laughs> I would not have done it the way that they did it. I would not have used capture, because capture yeah. is a kind of a, a defined term in the game that dupe does not work that way. <laughs> they sense it to dupe world. He yeah. has nothing other than dupe world grabbing it. Yeah, right. so the, that, that concept of a, a capture die not needing some type of a die to maintain that capture... Is a mm-hmm. is a kind of a new concept that they introduced with this ruling, and yeah. I gotta go with it because that's what they said. <laughs> Takes you back to that imprisoned conundrum, <laughs> and, right? <laughs> and I, it's interesting actually because in a way it actually resolves the beholder imprisoned conundrum because if you don't need a die to maintain the capture, then you can virtually capture cards without a die, and then there's no die to KO to end the capture, and it opens up its whole other can of worms. Okay, I guess you just have to think of it as a persistent effect that is somehow maintained by the game state, right? You know, Dupe at least says it's to the beginning of your next turn, and prison can be... Yeah. If, if I would have written Dupe, it would not have said capture. It would have said, mm-hmm. move target opposing character die out of play until the start of your next turn, or something that doesn't use the word capture, because I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if we get back to the bald man with the giant swinging metal ball, would he be able to use Dupe's effect there, do you think? So I, I see no reason he wouldn't, and in that case, because Absorbing Man is active, I would, in that circumstance, rule that Absorbing Man is the person that does the capture, and he would capture the die, and it would be subject to being released if Absorbing Man was KO'd. 
because Absorbing Man is still out there. It's kind of similar to the Beholder Imprisoned, where they said that the Beholder maintains the capture for Imprisoned when it virtually uses it. It's a weird thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could I could I could see it either way. Either way, I would say that Absorbing Man, if Dupe is KO'd, Absorbing Man can also capture a die. Whether that die is captured to Dupe World along with Dupe, or whether that die <laughs> right. is captured to Absorbing Man to maintain the capture. Right. I would rule it it would go to Absorbing Man because he's still out in the field, and that's the simplest, most normal way that capture works is to have an active character die that was involved in the capture process to maintain the capture. Would you say that it would still have to end at the start of your next turn because that was what Dupe's text said? Uh, yes. The, the capture rules themselves state that a capture lasts until specified on the card or until the, the capturing die is removed. Yeah. And in that case, the capture text says when the capture ends. So either start of the next turn or if Absorbing Man is removed. Well, that sounds like a really fun control-y combo at any rate. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so what about, again, with this Absorbing Man? One more question on him. How would you rule, what about if KO'd abilities? I mean, when I first saw that card spoil, I thought, wow, this is going to be great with Scarecrow, the rare crow. And I went and looked at the text, and it doesn't say when KO'd. It says if KO'd. Would you think that if KO'd would count, or was, is that splitting hairs here? My opinion is that this particular circumstance is a little bit hair splitting. I don't think that it's intended to be mm -hmm. a different thing because it uses the word if instead of when. I think that just the way that the text flowed better for Rare Crow. I Got would it. think that, yes, he would be able to copy Rare Crow's effect, and I would... <sighs> It's kind of tough, and I'm sure that this situation would come up when I'm the judge and have to rule on it. <laughs> right, but the way right. that, that Rare Crow is worded, he kind of has a couple different parts. So his basic text is, if Scarecrow is KO'd, take control of target opposing character die until end of turn. So that that right there is his win KO'd effect. Right. So if Scarecrow's KO'd, get control, and then Absorbing Man would also be able to get you control of a target opposing character die. Yeah. Scarecrow has some additional texts describing what you do with the KO'd Scarecrow die and how to handle it. Yep. I don't think that that would necessarily apply to Absorbing Man. Right. So it's actually stronger. I, if I were ruling it, that first sentence... When KO'd, control of target die until end of turn. That's the part that Absorbing Man could copy, and there would be no issue with that, is my opinion. <laughs> yeah, at the time I was wondering if it was a way of them intentionally nerfing cards like Rare Crow, saying to themselves, we know Absorbing Man's coming down the pike, so we'll give him an if-KO'd ability to limit the craziness, but... I think that is maybe giving them a little too much credit. I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> if, if they want to Fair use enough. that as an out to get around the whole interaction, <laughs> by all means do it. I don't think that was intended. So we have a question about the super rare Mr. Miracle and Boomerang. Say you have the super rare Mr. Miracle in the field and a ping basic action die on its burst face in your reserve pool. If you play ping and deal one damage to your opponent, Boomerang would trigger, right? But if you miss the first boomerang that you get from the ping, do you get to boomerang again from Mr. Miracle? So we've kind of seen other examples, uh, particularly with range, kind of the whole, well, what happens if you give a die that already has range and you grant it range? It doesn't really do anything. It doesn't get double range. Just like if you gave a die that already had Overcrush and it was granted Overcrush by Gorilla Grodd, it's not going to be doing quadruple damage now. It's You're giving it a keyword, it already has that keyword, it just still has the keyword. The only functional difference is now it would have Boomerang on the non-burst face as well. Okay, what if you play ping, right? 
it goes into the cube and Mr. Miracle will go into the cube because you're using an action die, right? You roll it, say you land it, you have to finish resolving its ability and you get it to say it doesn't turn, right? It just turns two. Would would that trigger it or no? You know, if it comes up on a double energy phase. Um, because you're finishing the whole action, right? You're resolving the entire thing. And would, would then Mr. Miracle come through the queue? It's one of these ones that, because yeah, my, my first inclination was exactly what you said. And then I thought about it a little bit. So I don't think Mr. Miracle necessarily interacts with the queue at all. I think his is just okay. kind of a persistent static, like, hey, action dice, you've got boomerang. Uh, like, if you didn't already have it, now you've got it. So it's he's not really, like, giving it, like, oh, now you have boomerang. It's just like, hey, as long as you exist, in addition to whatever else you have, add the word boomerang to the bottom of your card text. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, cool. One of the other questions I saw recently that I thought was really interesting was... I believe Zach inquired about the interaction between that OP Black Widow agent and the Phantom Stranger mysticism. Black Widow says, while she's active, reduce the damage from opposing character abilities by one. Your opponent can't target Black Widow with global abilities. And Phantom Stranger mysticism says, while Phantom Stranger is active, when an opposing character die attacks, the attacking character die deals one damage to all other opposing character dice. So the thought is, is would your Black Widow completely nerf Phantom Stranger's protection because the opponent's dice are the ones doing the damage when they attack? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, so so Phantom Stranger, he's kind of like a reverse lantern ring. Yeah. <laughs> Only instead of like all the attacking dice dealing damage to you, they're dealing it to themselves. Right. But again, it's granting an ability to other dice and it becomes a character ability that they have. So just like, you know, Lantern Ring grants all this damage to the different attacking dice, and if they were against Iron Fist back in the day, it would reduce each of the attacking Lantern Ring dice down by one, because it's that granted character ability. This is essentially the same thing, only instead of granting it to your own guys, you're granting it to your opposing dice, but it's still a character ability of theirs, and therefore it is reduced by Black Widow. That's really cool. What a cool interaction. One question that has puzzled me for a long time was the question of the rare T-Rex zombie and sidekick dice. Are they still sidekick dice for the purpose of other sidekick buffing characters? While T-Rex zombie is active, at the start of your turn, field an NPC die or a sidekick die from your use pile. And while T-Rex zombie is active, your NPC character dice are considered 2A and 2D zombies. Only their name and A and D values change. So say you had T-Rex zombie out and then you put out the uncommon Malekith who makes all sidekicks villains and gives them a plus one plus one buff. Are they considered sidekicks? Would they turn into villains? Would they get the buff? What do you so think? So I would say the T-Rex zombie, he works under the same principle as the ally keyword. He doesn't mm-hmm. take anything away. He gives them an additional characteristic. Sidekicks don't have a name, so you're adding a name to them of zombie. Interestingly, right. if you did have like an ally like Foot Ninja, they would lose Foot Ninja and gain zombie. <laughs> so their name would now yeah. they, they would no longer be named Foot Ninja, they would be named Zombie. Would their text change? Their text wouldn't change because it says only the name and attack and defense values change. So they wouldn't lose any text. They would just, if they have a name because they're an ally, they would replace that name with zombie. But for anything else, they're still sidekicks. They're still sidekick character dice. They're still getting whatever buffs or debuffs that sidekicks would get. They would just also be affected by things that would affect zombies or 
with Malekith, things that would affect villains. Wow. Well, that's a really strong card. How about the old super rare Curse Ball with the Arakokra Monastery? Now, they, they're sidekicks on their question mark faces, but I'm assuming the same applies. They're still sidekick dice, uh, right? That guy is a whole different thing. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry to bring him yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> because they're not sidekick character dice. Yeah. So anything that would buff sidekick character dice, which I believe Malekith does. Right. Yeah. So your sidekick character dice get plus one A and plus one D. So I would rule it to be slightly different because yeah. if you're looking for a like a die type, like Iceman Global could turn them to a bolt face. <laughs> Because he just looks for sidekick <laughs> dice. Got it. But anything that looks for a sidekick character dice, they would not be that. Because they would be Arara-Karakara. They're sidekick dice, but they're Arara-Karakara. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. as, as a type of die, they're still a sidekick die. But as a character die, I would say they would not be a sidekick character die. Got and it. quite honestly, they should have just used tokens instead of NPC dice. <laughs> that would have made it so much easier. But Yes, it would. But then we wouldn't be able to have this fun conversation. And, I know. And, and Michaela brought up the question that I thought made me really laugh was like, what if you had both? Yeah, of course you would. <laughs> who, who trumps who here? Would the static ability trump the applied ability or would they all get buffed? You know, it was a crazy question. I'm right? just going to flip the table at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, it still says, the Tyrannus zombie still says that your NPC character dice are 2A and 2Z zombies. So that wouldn't, right. that wouldn't hit Kirsabal. So. Very good. So there, Michaela. So maybe they're just their separate little entities out there. Deal with it. All right. Can you use the Clayface Global to bring in an action die from your use pile on an energy face and then use the uncommon Acerac Global to re-roll that die and potentially use it? I mean, the discrepancy here is the Acerac Global says to re-roll a die and the action die was just brought in it was never formally rolled yeah there are several different ways that you can bring dice into the reserve pool without explicitly rolling them mm -hmm. so this is kind of getting into some more kind of overall mechanics of the game the reserve pool and the field zone those two areas dice are considered to be rolled because they have a specific face that is facing up and that determines what they are, what you can do with them. The other areas, the prep area, the bag, the used pile, those areas are unrolled dice. Uh -huh. The face that's facing up doesn't matter. It's, it's just a storing zone. You can spin the dice all you want. It doesn't matter. It only matters where they are and what type of die they are. But they're not considered rolled dice. The face doesn't matter. So when Acerac tells you to re-roll, it's saying you're taking a die that is in a rolled status, even if you didn't physically roll it to get it there, and change it to a different rolled status. That re, you know, re-roll. Okay. So, on a similar topic, if I have the Zatanna with the global that says pay a fist to spin a die up a level, and I have a level one die in my reserve pool, can I use that global on a character die in my reserve pool? Does it? She say target. That would be the difference for me. I. Th think uh, once per turn spin target character die up one level so general game state and this is held out in the rule book is that for targeting when it uses that word target as a general rule unless there's some other factor in play only character dice in the field zone can be targeted and i know they like to use target player and target card and they just make it confusing in that sense but when it says a target die 
a target character die, that's going to be a die in the field zone on a character face. All right, because there's that one ruling on the rare Gorilla Grodd from Green Arrow and Flash. The sidekick fixer. The sidekick yeah, fixer, because yeah. that doesn't use the word target, and it's looking for a type of die. So it's not you're not doing a target character die. You're doing a a type of a of a die. In this case, it's a type of sidekick that is on a character face. The character part says it's in a rolled status and it's rolled onto a pawn side. But it's not Mm -hmm. targeting, it's just looking for a type of die that meets these criteria. Which is the same kind of thing as the old Magneto Global that lets you re-roll a villain die. (laughs) God, that one used to make me crazy. (laughs) I I know. I've had to to try to work my head around what the difference is on these. And uh, again, he's not targeting, he's looking for a type of die a villain die. And that's what he is able to re-roll, okay. is, a, is a, that type of die. Well, that makes sense. Thank you, Paul. That, that's very helpful. One, one, one last question while we're on the topic of Zatanna and spinning up. <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> so let's say, going back to Poison Ivy really quickly, if I fielded Poison Ivy, the one that KOs a character die and then does all the damage to the opposing character dice, if I have the Zatanna that when you field a character, it spins up a level, do I get to choose the orders of effects in such a way that I can spin up Poison Ivy and then use her effect? Let me see here. When you field a character die, spin it up one level. Um... Yes, you should be able to because you are fielding the die, which triggers both Poison Ivy's when fielded and Zatanna's when another character is fielded. And as the active player, you control both of those effects that are simultaneously triggered by the same die being fielded. And so you would be able to choose the order of your simultaneous effects. Really cool. I like it. All right, one question that came up this weekend with with character and this character and active and and Winfielded. The reminder text for Strike (laughs) says this character, Uh right? And this nearly came to fisticuffs, I swear. I believe it. People are wondering, if you already have a Black Canary with Strike, say you already have Winfielded from a previous turn, and you subsequently field a second Black Canary, the question was, do both get plus two, plus two in Overcrush? Because it says this character... What, what's, what's your thoughts on this? This is one of those instances where the keyword page should have a more explicit definition than just the reminder text. Yep. And it currently does not. And hopefully by the time this podcast drops, that will no longer be the case. Got it. But Would it fall under the leave me alone guidance? It's just going to be the single die. I can tell you that that is definitely the case. It's only the die that was fielded that turn gets the bonus. That's what we yeah. went with, too, for the reason I thought. I said, leave me alone and the weaker ruling interpretation yeah. you know, until we get a clear guidance yeah. on this. Right? I, I don't know if there's – you could potentially get there with some different stuff like that, but the, the keywords page – it, it will be updated and it will make it clear that it is just that die that you fielded is the one that gets the bonus. This is Kang the Conqueror from the future. Strike is only one character die as has now been officially ruled. I have a question about the uncommon Thanos from Guardians. Should we treat the dice he's named the same way that we treat the immortal character dice because of the immortal ruling? I... When it's being sent as energy, it's not a character die, it's an energy die. Right. It's basically the same concept that Immortal is, is, you know, Immortal only triggers when it's going to use as a character die and not, you know, when it's being purchased or, you know. So you think with Thanos, the die goes as energy, he doesn't trigger? I don't think he does. Oh, wow, I I would I would treat it the same as Immortal. Really? Because 
the 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 character is not going to use the the die is going to use but not as a character die it is spent as an energy die the the cards don't always support this necessarily unfortunately the rule book kind of made the distinction between the rolled and the unrolled areas so in the rolled area like the the reserve pool in the field Mm -hmm. the die is whatever its face Face is. is right so a die on an energy face is an energy die a die on a character face is a character die. And a die on an action face is an action die. Right. So those are the three types of dice you have in the rolled state. Okay. In the unrolled state, you have a slightly different three types of dice. You have action dice, character dice, and sidekick dice as types of dice. Right. So it's a little weird. The way I'd read that, and obviously I'm probably wrong here, I'd always read it that Immortal was a special subset that dealt with just immortal characters and how immortal works. And that Thanos was this thing that just says, did the die that belongs to X character go to used? If so, and I've named it, bang, there goes four damage, you know? But yeah, because like I said, it's, it's when, the, when the character goes to the used pile, not necessarily yeah, I can't remember dies. what his text says. Yeah. When fielded, name an opposing character, placing all previous choices... While Thanos is active, the named character cannot be fielded. And while Thanos is active, when the named character is put into the used pile, Thanos fields your opponent for damage. Okay. So that's looking for the character going to the used pile. Not the character. Doesn't say character die. Not necessarily the die. Right. Oh, interesting. Uh, And like I said, game mechanic-wise, when it is on an energy face and being spent as energy, it's not the character. It's... It's energy. It's just yep. an energy die. So, Interesting. And so that really nerfs that, nerf that card a lot, boy. That's great. Yeah, well, I mean, it's still... Yeah. <laughs> it's still a powerful card, but yeah. It's still a pretty powerful card. So for our, our one big weekend tournament, we've got a few questions that have come in, and, I'm, and let me pass on some of those to you. One of them was, and I thought this was really interesting, when I reread the rule book yesterday, one of the things I came across was page seven of the rule book says, when you purchase a die from a card, you must pay at least one of each matching energy type, and generally, that die will produce that energy type. I thought that was interesting, because we've got a couple of cards. The new OP Iron Man, he's dies a bolt, but the card says shield, and the Black Adam from Justice, the dies a mask, but the card says fist. So at first I looked at those and I thought, uh-oh, here we've got the Starload problem again, you know, and that it was a mistake. But then I read the rules and I thought, well, maybe they're actually trying to make it harder. What's, what's your thought on that? So the reason that that was written into the rulebook was primarily for crossover characters who have a specific energy type to purchase and they produce that, but they also produce generic or wild energy, depending on if it's the, the normal ones or the super rare ones. And and it, it does also open up the possibility of future design space yeah. for some type of a die that may produce different energy. Different energy. But currently, I am under the impression that that is a misprint errata that will be happening in the near future. I don't know. Okay, so we should just use the Star-Lord precedent in the, in the short term? In the short think, term, or? I think that that would be a safe bet. Okay. And I, I feel that if they had intended it to be different like that, that they would have made a bigger deal out of it. And so... Mm-hmm. That kind of leads me to believe that it was unintentional. Came the Conqueror again from the future. Iron Man and Black Adam have officially been eroded to match the energy type on their die. I thought this might be a good point to break down 
three of the basics that seem to always trip people up, um, if that's possible. And the first one we talked about a little bit already. It's the leave me alone guidance. Can you can you talk about what that means? This black canary, it seems, strikes me as one of these things that's kind of like that. I remember originally it was with Wolverine, right? So what it basically means is when they first started the game, they weren't very clear about the wordings. Right. <laughs> and and this was a way to try to to get people to make a little bit more sense of what the intent was. And mm-hmm. when something's like, you know, character attacks alone, well, yes, when I say character, I could be referring to the single die because a lot of like target character gets this. And we generally understand that to be that one specific die gets this. And they've gotten a lot more clear in the wordings where they're like target character die gets this or character's card gets this and they've tried to be a lot more clear about when it applies to all of the dice belonging to a card versus a single die right so in general most of the newer wordings are more clear about that that's true so this is generally going to be more helpful for some of the older ones that aren't as explicitly clear but you can still kind of get the intent that if it's something that seems like it would be for a single die, it's probably for a single die. Like the Poxwalker that attacks by itself, it would be a leave me alone example, right? Yeah, and and I mean that's it's logical. It's what you would expect. You know, it's it's kind of clear what the intent of that ability is. Is that hey, you got this one die attacking alone, it gets a bonus. Cool. You know, and if you've got four of that dice attacking, it's not really attacking alone. Like, <laughs> right, you can kind of right, stretch right, right. The, the thematic description a little bit and say, well, it's Wolverine attacking four times as strong. <laughs> no. Just <Right>. no. <laughs> Got it. You know what it means. <laughs> right. Everyone's trying to get the edge, right? All right, let's go to the second one. That Then this one I think is really pretty relevant today, maybe more than ever. And that's the can't force you to pay a cost rule. And we'll link to the ruling in the show notes. I mean, originally it was about that super rare lantern battery and like having a force attack global or... No, the original the original one was actually on the force attack global with the Kitty Pride from UFM. You're, you're right. Yep. Who said you pay the mask and then if they attack with the die that you targeted, then they take one damage. So they were wondering if they could play that global and use a force attack in order to force them to pay a cost. Right. And then the super rare lantern battery is the one that always jumps to mind for me. And there was a ruling with that card in Supergirl, last daughter of Krypton, who says opposing characters must block. So the question is, what what constitutes a cost here, I guess, ultimately, right? Yeah, and this is, I'm still not 100% sure, and I'm hoping that they can do a little bit more clarification. A lot of the time when they talk about costs, in this sense, they're saying something along the lines of, you can't do this thing unless you do this negative thing. Right. Like Modoc, for example, you can't reroll dice unless you pay to reroll the dice. You can't block unless you pay one life per blocker. Stuff like that, I think, is kind of where it is a lot more clearly a cost. Yeah. And then it's the you can't do this unless that can't kind of overrides the, well, you must attack. So that's in general, I think the more clear, you can't force someone to pay a cost. So your must won't override their can't. Yeah, because you've got all these ones that seem good to me, but they kind of get in the little gray areas, like these new combos like Tabaxi Rogue and Green Devil Mask combo or the Force Attack paired with that new Phantom Stranger we were talking about. You know, Or even some old ones like a, a Force Block paired with Lissadrak. Yeah. 
Some of those are legal, or, or are they all out of bounds, you know? Yeah. I'm still not 100% sure on how damage would be ruled in that sense, because generally, yes, taking damage is a bad thing. And <laughs> right. in, in that sense of a cost that can't be avoided, if a thing says, you know, you have to take damage to do this thing, that's the part of the cost, and you have to take the damage. There's like some key vocabulary involved in there as well, right? Certain wordings that are common, like, when X happens, you must, or like, in order to do X, you must first, or each time X happens, you must. Well, that's what I'm wondering, like, Green Devil Mask says, the trap goes off and you must re-roll these dice, right? So... It's not like mm-hmm. you have a choice. It's more about <laughs> what defines a cost than that's where most of these yeah. discrepancies pop up. I, I found. Yeah, yep. and and that's something that like that I'm gonna hope that they try to get a little bit more clear about, especially like I said, the Tabaxi and Green Devil Mask is one of the more obvious ones, because I think that they're using cost almost in two separate ways here, because there's cost can't be redirected or avoided. That's that's something in the rule book. Right. Because of Cassie Sandsmark <laughs> is the reason that, I, um, you know, there's there's certain things that there's a cost to do them. And if you want to do them yourself, you can't avoid paying that cost. You can't target an right. Iron Will character with a KO a die to do this because the Iron Will character can't be KO'd. And that would be bypassing that cost. So you, right. you can't blatantly ignore a cost. <laughs> So that's the one sense. And the other one of forcing your opponent to pay a cost, that's where it gets a lot more murky and where I think that they need to have that sense of cost a little bit more clearly delineated. And I'm not sure that it is right now. I think there's some instances like you can't do this unless you pay whatever. Those ones are pretty clearly like a cost that you can't force an opponent to pay. Taking damage, I'm not sure if that is exactly the same or not. I would say no, but... So what, for example, do you make of the idea of pairing the... If I had Lissadrac and the Giant Spider Global, and I force you to block my Lissadrac with the die that I name with Spider, if I attack with Lissadrac and force that die to block, then it says, whenever the name's character die blocks, move two dice from your opponent's use pile to their bag. Would you say that that is a cost or just a negative effect? That one's hard because I'm trying to mentally think, like, would it make sense to reword this ability as you must do this in order to do this? Like, you must move two dice from your use pile to your bag, or you must let your opponent choose two dice to move in order to block with this character. And that doesn't really flow the same way to me. Like it does, that doesn't seem like the same ability versus you can't do this unless you do this, which is a bit more clear. Like Modoc is, you know, you can't do this unless you pay this. Yeah, like the Lissadrak is more of a if you do this, then this is the consequence. It's more of like a a consequence versus a cost. Yeah, so, yeah and I, I, I think that's yeah. probably where I would lean, but in some ways it's almost like a case by case basis. Yeah, unless we can get some clearer definition delineation yeah if they could define the difference between a consequence versus a cost that would be great right (laughs) yeah it would be (laughs) (laughs) all right let's move on to the other one that that has always thrown me and some of it makes sense and this is talking about static buffs so you've got something that is giving a buff it's sitting out there while active ability 
other characters are getting bigger. Let's just say there's a character in the field that gives other characters plus two attack while he's sitting uh-huh. out there, right? Now, we know that it always is buffing the attack, so you can't do like a Kal-El or a new Bizarro Global to flip upside down, right? It's always going to be modifying the attack. That makes a lot of sense. The one that I think trips a lot of people up is using it with transfer power. Say you had a die that was five attack and now it's seven attack and you want to transfer that seven attack to another die. When it transfers, I've always been told that that doesn't count. It would still be a five, right? Yeah, and I think that it's the same principle as as the swapping attack and defense is my my kind of way that I think about it is if you kind of look at it from outside, if I swap a thing and then my opponent swaps it back it should be exactly the same as the state it was before would you agree to that yes so if i swap my static boosted attack over then that static Uh, boost is going to still be on the first die and then i swap it back and now it's going to be double boosted two more right so that's kind of my thinking reasoning why it doesn't work or why it shouldn't work that's cool so you know whenever you're talking about swapping things you're gonna take out the static things swap the printed plus applied and then reapply the static stuff okay well that makes a lot of sense to me okay cool i like that so how does Morph work with Orbital Strike and Doomlance? Is it implied in Orbital Strike and with Doomlance that it can only be used during your main step? Essentially, yes. The wording kind of implies it, and I'm hoping that they address this in a ruling. I think that they were supposed to and haven't yet. <clears throat> um, I'm hoping this gets addressed in a ruling <laughs> in the near future. I think that the, the reasoning they're going to go with is that, and this is making it kind of weird with what we just discussed, but the restriction on what you can and can't attack with is kind of a cost that can't be avoided. And so by playing it Mm. during the attack step, you would be avoiding having paid that cost that that restricts your attack step. I personally think it would be easier to just errata it and say play only during your main step because we already have at least one basic action that says that. But for reasons... They, they have a strong disinclination to errata cards. If I attack with Morph, right, can I use Doomlance on him? He's the only character to die attacking. I've paid the cost. Right? I, I would say at that point, you've already gotten out of your main step, so no, because you don't know that you're only attacking with Morph, because you could attack with Morph and several other characters, mm-hmm. and you would still be triggering his wind fielded. And the, I don't see any way to, to distinguish that from the effect. So... Again, I'm going to at least mentally errata it to play only during your main step. I have a question for you now. This one is the one that seems to be percolating in the community a lot right now. And that is the Riddler card, the new Riddler card. Creature of pure pride. He says, when the Riddler is active, when an opponent rolls or re-rolls a die other than during the roll and re-roll step, deal that opponent two damage. And the key word in here is when an opponent rolls. You know, some cards like Storm or Apocalypse, Earth 295, mm-hmm. you know, just say when it's fielded, re-roll all characters. And and people are arguing that's implied that it's you doing the re-rolling, not your opponent. I don't think at this point that the game makes a mechanical differentiation for that. Okay. My understanding is that the general re-roll this is saying that that die must be re-rolled as opposed to mm-hmm. the person who is controlling this effect must reach over and re-roll the die themselves. 
I think right. it's just saying, hey, I want that die to be re-rolled. I want that die to be re-rolled. I want all of your dice to be re-rolled. So you're saying it's a question of what is re-rolled rather than who is doing the I believe rolling. so. That, that would be my interpretation of it unless they make a differentiation between those. I don't see that there is one currently from, from a mechanical standpoint. I know people were citing the rare Batman from the Batman set that clearly said your opponent must re-roll, but... Then you've got others, you know, like the old Storm from Goddess of Plane. She's when Storm attacks, reroll each of your opponent's characters. I, I think that we've had so, enough examples by this point that two similar abilities that are worded slightly differently does not actually mean anything. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but in your opinion, Riddler would proceed in either case, right? I would think so, yes. Okay. Unless we want to get into that being a cost, which is a whole separate issue. <laughs> <laughs> right. But right. Talk about can of worms. As, as far as mechanically it goes, I think that, yeah, that's not going to be a, a differentiation. All right. Real quick. The other thing that was different in this set, it was the new energy field global. When we first looked at it, we just quickly looked at it and assumed, oh, that's good. that's the old polymorph mutation global. Mm -hmm. But then when you stop and actually read it, it actually has different text. It says, global, pay a mask and spin one of your active character dice down one level, period. Spin target character die up one level. So can that on its own trigger awaken and stuff like that? Can you spin the same die down and then up again? As up again? written, yes. And I don't know okay. if that was intentional or not. I think they were trying to, because there was some questions about it before, I think they were trying to clarify that paying the mask and spinning down the thing is the cost. Because before, right. there was like, pay mask, spin this, and people were having the impression that, well, you pay the mask is the cost, and then everything else is the effect. <laughs> and that right. is not the way that it should work, because uh, paying the mask and spinning down are the cost, and then the spinning up is the effect. So that, like I said, they were trying to word it much more clearly that the first part before the period is the cost. Now, I don't know mm -hmm. if they accidentally left off the word another or if that was intentional to change it, to be able to spin itself up and down, I, I don't have that information. I don't know. Interesting. So barring an errata from them, it, it's, it's very clear as written that yes, you can spin it down and it back up. Moving on. Can you help us with the infinite <laughs> loop ruling? What constitutes an infinite no. loop? <laughs> I mean, it's clear that something once started that can't be stopped is obvious, right? But, but what if a player chooses to do something and activates it time after time and after time repeatedly? I mean, know? without, you know, if there's no built-in limitation, like, you know, you can do a global as many times as you can pay for it. And if you've got a crap ton of energy, right. you can just keep using that global. So if it doesn't, you know, limit whatever the ability is to once per turn. Right. So that makes sense. Maybe we should call it like the chain reaction ruling, right? Once a chain reaction starts, that kind of makes sense, right? But if it's something that you have to continually do over and over, like with, they say, that um, Robin, the OP Robin in a Teen Titans character that lets you spin things up and down. And if you got two things in the field, you could potentially set up a combo that it would just go and go and go and go and go, right? Yeah, because like I said, th there's no inherent built-in limitation to how many times you can do Robin's ability as long as you have the conditions met. Now, whether there should be or not, I don't know. But as it's written, right. as long as you fulfill the conditions, you can do it. Got it. All right. Quick question about the new Plague Marine, Festering Wound. He reads, When a sidekick character die is KO'd, you may feel the Plague Marine character die from your used pile or prep area at level 2. 
Does he need to be active for this ability to trigger? So there is a thing in the rule book that kind of applies, and it's not quite as explicit as it could be, but mm-hmm. as a general rule, character dice need to be fielded or in the field to use their character card's text. Yep. However, character dice that reduce their own purchase cost or fielding cost are an exception to this. So anything that deals with how the die is purchased, how the die is fielded, inherently it doesn't need to be active because that would kind of defeat the purpose of it. So is this one of those cases? So I would say that you do not need to have one active because it is the way that you are bringing it in. It is the way that you are fielding it. And I think that there's a few other, when this happens, field from your use pile or whatever. And I I think that those would all fall into the same thing of, you know, this is telling you how you can field this die, whether it be for free or with some other weird way. And this would be the some other weird way. Got it. Two more quick little rules questions and we're going to move on from the rules before we all just blow up from rules fatigue. <laughs> <laughs> all right. for, for the purposes of game effects, are, are the basic actions that your opponent brings considered to be opposing or shared? This is something that, that they need to clarify for a few different reasons, and I'm trying to, to get that. Uh-huh. In general, my thought, depending on exactly how the thing is worded, when I think of opposing team, I think it's the cards that I can't buy. So it would be the eight cards on their team. I think of those as the opposing ones. When it comes to the basic actions, they're kind of both players. They're kind of in their own little realm. So it, it kind of depends on on what specific card text is referring to and the most logical way to interpret it at that point. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they will clarify that because I think there are a couple of cards where it's a little ambiguous. Yeah. So with Scarecrow, for example... The one that makes an opposing card cost three more. There's just nothing on that right now. Like, can I name Doomlands? Name an opposing card. Yeah, for for that, I would... Opposing card, I would probably not include the basic actions. Mm-hmm. Shoot, I could have won some more games if I had known that. Because then, heck, you're <laughs> hurting yourself because it would cost you three That's more great. also. Now, without getting into the weeds too deeply on this one, but real quick, your opinion on the apparent conflict between this new uncommon spot ruling yeah. <laughs> and versus the Dark Magician Tabaxi Rogue rulings. Should we just live with the spot at this point as the exception to the rule? Or or his, is he the new touchstone moving forward? What's, what's your opinion on that? I don't think he is intended to be the touchstone. I think that he was supposed to get more of an errata mm-hmm. than the ruling that they gave. Got it. And I am hoping that that is one of the first things that they address when they get back on the rules forum. However they go about addressing that, it's possible they'll address it by going back and reverting all the old stuff to be that new way. But I think that it's more likely that he will be a single errata change whatever just by speculation i think the only reason that they even did that was so that atlantis wouldn't be too powerful with (laughs) with spot but that's just me speculating i i don't know what i'm saying spot was getting kind of ridiculous the way that he was working and i never thought he was too broken because you know you have to buy actions as well it's not like a one and done ramp piece it's like three and done (laughs) he's still pretty good he's still good he's still really good all right, well, uh, let's, let's move on to a new section. We're going to initiate a new section on your episode here, PK. Oh, boy. We're going to call this one Shenanigans and Shillelaghs. And the idea here is give me two of your favorite combat tricks and surprise moves. Oh, boy. So the one that I can think of, and I'm not the only person that has used this. I know, I don't even remember who it was. 
think it might have been Mike Plum that talked about it in the past. Mm-hmm. But going back to one of the basic actions that I like to use, which is polymorph. Yeah. Polymorph is such a versatile action. It is so good in so many different ways. Yep. And then they made this new misdirection, which is cheaper. Mm-hmm. It lets you get your own dice out. Polymorph is not just that. It does that, and it's a great way to quickly get a die out, and you can do some really fun combat tricks with that by choosing not to field a die, and then at the end of the main step, it goes to used. You attack with a sidekick, and then you swap that die in for free without paying its fielding cost into the attack zone, and it's attacking now after the blockers have been declared. (laughs) Or not, as the case may be, right? That's super fun to do. (laughs) Yeah. I've certainly felt the pain from that one. (laughs) Initially, he he hit me in the face, like square in the face with that, like four times before I finally got wise to it. (laughs) The proverbial he over here. (laughs) Yeah, proverbial he, you. And none other. <laughs> but see, that that's one thing you could do with it. The other is it's targeted removal. And a lot of people yeah. have used it like to get your own stuff out, but you can use it against the opponent to get their stuff out of the field as long as they have something that you want that is in their use pile that doesn't bother you as much. Or something with a win-fielded trigger that's in their used pile that they're trying to cycle back around. I swapped it in with Polymorph. They just lost their ability to field it until they can get it out of the field again. Yeah, boy, that would really hurt that uncommon blob, right? For me, Polymorph is kind of like Bug House, except for Dice Masters. Bug House was a chess variant. It's that moment when you put something in your use pile and then they draw the polymorph and you're like, oh, shoot, they had that coming. (laughs) And they poly in the thing from your use pile and you you feel like so much regret because it could have so easily been avoided if you hadn't been greedy and just said, what the hell, I'll buy the extra Ant-Man, even though you knew you didn't need it. And and you just kick yourself, you know? Yeah, and I've actually, yeah. I've, I've been in a game before, and I specifically remember they've got a polymorph coming up. And I, I, I had to very carefully choose which energy I spent on this turn, <laughs> which dice I spent energy with to make sure that there was only sidekicks in my used pile or a die that I wanted more than the one they were going to take out. (laughs) And and, oh my gosh, it pissed them off so much (laughs) because they pulled the polymorph and they're like, yes, I can get that die out of your field. Oh, wait. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Here comes Genzo if you really want to swap him in. <laughs> oh, man. Sweet, I think it was like I was, I was doing a mass green team and I think they had bought one of my polymorphs and I think that they were trying to get what was it? I think they were trying to get maybe my Oracle out yeah. because, you know, it was, they were not liking it, but the only <laughs> thing I had in my use pile they could pull in was my Raven that would protect all the rest of my dice from being targeted. <laughs> and at that point, once you've got Raven out there, they can't polymorph you out because you're protected yeah. from that targeting. So Such a good uh, card. It, was, it was glorious. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a great die and it gets you in the opponent's head. Once you picked it up, you know, you've really got to, Drink another cup of coffee and pay attention once that die hits the bag. There's also the global too, right? Beyond Awaken, like if you attack with two dice and they only have one blocker, Mm -hmm. whichever one they don't block, you can spin the one they've locked down, spin the one they didn't block up. That's like a bit more basic, but... Yep, I've done that, and it's not often that you want to do it, but you can spin one of yours down to get one of theirs spun up. And you rarely want to do it because you don't want to give them the higher stats, but if they're on a burst face and you don't want them on that burst face, you can, you know, heck, I'll spin down 
whatever, I don't care about what level it's on because it's just a while active ability. I'll spin it down a level and get that guy off a burst face. Yeah. I've used it recently. Say you've got that three cost Ant-Man that, you know, when he spins up, he's unblockable. Sometimes you roll him in level three and you need to get him down and you got nothing else to spin up to spin down. So you can spin him down to spin your opponents up, you know, and then spin him up and, and go through unblock. So, so it works that way sometimes too, you know? Yeah. There's, there's just, there's so many just little things that, you know, the text allows for it, but it's it's unintuitive, and and I think that that's something that a, a lot of the better players have done. And I'm I'm not trying to include myself because I've I've just gathered it from other people watching them do it. But figuring out how to use an ability in an unintuitive way is yeah. is so it can be so strong, you know, because yep. you see the ability, you can see how it's useful, you can see what it's good at doing, what it's trying to do. But if I can twist that and use that in a way that would normally be thought of as a negative, but in this circumstance, it's actually a positive. Being able to, to see yeah. those things unintuitively is, is something that I think is, is a very strong skill that some of the team builders, the people who actually are brewing the teams and, and looking at those cards and figuring that out, that is a, is a really powerful skill and something that if, if you can learn how to do that, that is going to help you a lot. For or, sure. or if you're watching other games and, and seeing what these people can do with these different abilities and, oh, I never would have thought to use it that way. That is a, is a strong skill to be able to use in Dice Masters. All right. Shall we move on to the Hall of Fame? Hall of Fame. <laughs> All right. Well, for our Hall of Fame, We've been asking all of our guests to nominate a retired or semi-retired player for our imaginary Dice Masters Hall of Fame. And at the end of the season, we're going to count up all the nominations and induct someone into said hall. PK, have you got someone that you feel would be worthy of such an honor? Uh, So I had to think about this a lot because there's definitely several people who unfortunately aren't strong into the scene and playing that much anymore but the person that i think is probably has has kind of been one of the most helpful people for me and in helping kind of get me even more into dice masters is chris lanice known as indimon mm-hmm. so he's relatively geographically near me he lives up in washington and he has been a strong champion of the dice master scene in the pacific northwest and really helping out with that a couple years ago he organized an international competition between the u.s and canada oh great where they had some people from canada come down one weekend to play an event in washington and then a couple weeks later, they had the, the Washington contingent go up to Vancouver, B.C., and play up there and kind of see which country was the winner. Awesome. And uh, <laughs> so that was just a really cool thing. And then he's judged several WKOs that I've been at and just done an amazing job with that. Yeah. And then people are probably familiar. You know, he was the head judge at Origins a couple years back. Yeah. And so you guys have that in common, right? Yeah. He's also the head so, judge at PAX for Worlds this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he did that. I, I'm not saying that he did it because I couldn't go, because quite honestly, it's it's the other <laughs> way around. The, the, the reason that I did it at Origins <laughs> at Nationals last year is because he couldn't go, because he, he would have been the guy to do that, and he has done an amazing job 
every time I've been in an event, he's judged. He's been excellent. He's very knowledgeable with the rules. Oh, for sure. He is a judge in real life. That is actually his profession. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. He, he's, he's actually a, a judge in real life. Oh, that's so cool. He's just a super friendly guy, super great guy. And yeah. he's really, you know, almost in, in some ways been like a mentor to me of like, hey, I really want to dig in and figure out the rules of this game. And so he's been very helpful for me. Yeah. Andy Mon's name is definitely synonymous with excellence in the community not only as a judge but as a player too starting with the early days yeah and before even he was in the judging realm he was a very strong tournament player and you know he'd won several competitions and i think a couple wkos as well Mm -hmm. so he's not a he's not a slouch as a player either no he's certainly not and we've already inadvertently talked about a couple of cards that Chris might have been the first to unleash. In particular, Genzo Trap Destroyer and Polymorph. He was the start of that Poly Genzo craze for a while. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of funny because, and I was talking about this with Jimmy uh, a year or two ago, is that there's certain players who have like a specific card that is like it's their card yeah it's a card that they like to use that nobody else uses and and his was was mara yeah he he loved that mara global and just championed it and he thought it was the greatest thing ever and nobody else used it and and there's no reason you know because it's a powerful global and for sure you know for, for those cards that are hitting you with one big massive over crushing mr fix it Mara Global's perfect for that. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, you only give me this much damage. I don't care how big your guy is. You know. But it was just one right. of those cards that never took off. But it's it's just tied to him. And I think I think Dormammu is mine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think I you know I, I I can't prove this, but I, I've seen a couple of different OP cards, cards that they've chosen for alternate arts or foil arts mm-hmm. that that maybe people are like. Why did that card get chosen? And I think there's a few of them that they've selected because it's like it's that person. Yeah. You know, cool. I think that that's cool. <laughs> I, I can't I can't confirm that. I've never said anything officially about that. Uh-huh. But just from knowing some of the cards they've chosen for OP kits and some of the players that I know, I, I kind of have this this feeling right. of like, I think the reason they chose that character for that alt art is because of that person. That's awesome. A little tip of the hat. That's cool. Well, Chris, a.k.a. Indymon, if you are listening, you have officially been nominated to the Hall of Fame. Thank you, PK. Is there anything else that we failed to mention in here that you wanted to bring up or... Here's your opportunity to shout to the world. Yeah, I'm, I just like I, I wanted to just give a shout out to you guys because you know I met you a couple years ago at Origins and you guys are just you're awesome people, you're awesome players, you're you're extremely good at the game, obviously, and just super friendly. Like I've loved being able to just spend time with you, like when we're hanging out at Origins, and it's just always a blast to kind of just see you guys and to play with you guys, and it's just really good. And I'm really glad that you guys have chosen to kind of pick up this mantle of being a, a regular voice of the community. I think it's something that it's it's difficult to do as we all know there have been several different podcasts at one point or another that have just you know it's hard work putting out regular content and you guys are doing a great job i hope you continue there's there's not as many podcasts now as there were at one point in the past and i think that you guys are one of those really good voices and i'm really glad to have you guys be one of those one of the podcasts we have right now well, thank you. thank you. Thank you. And we, we always enjoy seeing you too. And, and I'm hoping that we, if you get a chance to come come to Origins this year, it'd be great to sit down and roll some dice with you and 
have a laugh and whatever. I, I may or may not have purchased plane tickets already. Well, we'll uh, see. <laughs> that's good to hear that. Awesome. Awesome. You're making me smile over here. Well, thank you, PK. Thank you for taking so much time again. And I, we really appreciate it. And again, thank you for just being the, the, the sage, calm, reasonable voice when it comes to discussing these, for whatever reason, very fiery topics of the rules. (laughs) I do what I can. I do what I can. (laughs) All right, my friend. All right. Thank you guys for having me on your podcast. Our pleasure. Puzzle time. The charismatic Agent Venom continuously summons allies to his aid, while his pal Gobby takes massive bites out of your life. Your meager Legion of Doom forces cower in the shadows of your opponent's might. Can you rise up to show the world that although they may have the numbers, you have the power? Come try the puzzle at rollandthunder.xyz forward slash puzzle 107. And listen to next episode for the solution. Really should listen. Magalore, Renimage, Yoga. All right, good luck to all the people competing in the One Big Weekend online tournament. Amor, Orev. Also, next episode, we're going to have a few people on to talk about the events that transpire in the One Big Weekend online tournament, so stay tuned for that. See you folks in a fortnight. Well, that's the end of Turn 5, my friends, and it's time for the final clear. We hoped you enjoyed today's show. You can find us at rollinthunder.xyz, without a G or an apostrophe, where you'll discover all the links necessary to listen or subscribe to the show. You can also reach us by email at arge or lucan at rollinthunder.xyz. Our theme music was created by Jesse Weiner. We're in no way affiliated with WizKids, other than we love and celebrate the game of Dice Masters. So keep on rolling, August Narlagagia the Lao. We'll be talking again in two weeks' time with another guest. So stay tuned. Enough said. The fight music. That's a fight music. That's a fight. <laughs> <laughs>